1: welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1439. For some reason I'm inspired to say 99, or actually (laughs) (laughs) Deep Space Nine probably would be more appropriate for today. Our title is uh, Resistance is Lucrative. (laughs) (laughs) And our podcast title is Make It Pod. Nice. So today we're going to be looking at Rob Jan.
0: <laughs> and me can <laughs> and oh,
1: And well, we'll also have a go at a film called Tetris and the final season of Star Trek Picard. Although never say final in Star Trek, you never know. <laughs> and we might fly by the Marvels trailer, which has dropped in all its gloriosity. <laughs> Mm. so let's go with tetris first up now megan you brought me to this film i had no idea it existed and know nothing about it so enlighten us
0: yeah so what piqued my interest at first was i was like oh okay retro video game origin movie i wonder how they'll pull this off um apple tv plus is where you can find it and apple was very keen to show me the trailer many times and i thought I reckon this could be one for us to cover. I think Rob would enjoy it. I guess my I'm coming from it really interested in the game side, and I think you're probably much more interested in the history side as well, which I'll let you delve into in a sec. But a little bit about Tetris. So not many people would know, but it was actually created in Russia behind the Iron Curtain by someone called Alexey Pajitnov. Um, he worked for the government, and his job was to program different games to test out the capabilities of the computer equipment that they were building in the USSR at the time. Um, of course, it being Soviet Union at the time, the rights for his game went straight to the government. And it was a 10-year kind of rights situation. So it was to the government to license out any official versions and they owned the game for that 10-year period. Only uh, since 1996 did he get the rights back and start earning royalties on what we can all agree is an extremely popular game. And some do say it's the top-selling game of all time. Having been uh, created in the 80s, since then it's been available on 65 different platforms, not including things it was illegally hacked onto. (laughs) Um, And I think it's that space of time plus just the sheer amount of things you can play it on um, that have kept it being so popular, as well as the fact that it's quite addictive and very playable. Now, Rob, you said to me when I suggested this, you actually hadn't played it very much. Tell me more. I've played it once, actually twice
1: now um, because (laughs) I I got onto a platform and just played it just the other day. I don't see the appeal of it. I I mean, in case you're one of the other people, one of two other people on the planet who have not played Tetris, it's one of those games where you get blocks falling down the screen. It's very simple. And your positioning in this is to try and get them into a solid unit at the bottom of the screen? Yeah, Yeah, correct. And and you, you win... Sound effects and the fame and glory of the people of forever. You know, nothing like. That. Yeah, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't get it. Is this like a Candy Crush thing, that sort of thing? Or- yeah.
0: No, well, I guess it's OG Candy Crush. But I think what made it so interesting is, of course, um, there's a lot of ma- mathematics that go into behind the game, the possibilities, because uh-huh. the falling blocks kind of are generated in different shapes. They're called tetraminos and they're made up of four blocks. It's a type of something called a pentamino, which has five blocks. But I think the way they're generated and fall and the possibilities Mathematicians love it. They love to dig into like could you play a never ending game of Tetris? Oh. What are the possibilities? so on it so that and I also think one thing I did find very interesting was that um playing Tetris is sort of a very is an experience such that it can help with things like PTSD because wow. you have to visualize and problem solve and there was a study done that showed if people played Tetris right after a traumatic event the playing of the Tetris would occupy their brain so it would override the brain's ability to like loop that traumatic event and cause those traumatic pathways in the brain that lead to something like PTSD. I've probably really butchered that explanation but I thought that was really interesting and there is a study on that, that that it shows that playing it straight after it can help with Diminishing the, the chances of, of PTSD. So I bet the char- a couple
1: more. I bet the characters in the film would play it after the experiences they go through.
0: Oh my god! I think yeah, probably good to have it on hand after what they go through. But uh, another quick, a uh, couple of quick Tetris facts. It was played in space by a Russian cosmonaut in 1993. Ah. He had a Game Boy with Tetris on it, so it's the first video game played in space. Um, and I think just to sort of round out my few little Tetris facts, um, Pajitnov, the creator, did say that the reason, as well, for the rise in popularity of Tetris probably had a lot to do with what was happening at the time. Uh, the computer was very new, and it was something that he wanted to show that it, the computer could be something you could play games on, that it could be fun. It wasn't just about computing spreadsheets and so on. It, It was something that he thought would make people feel better about the computer and that was part of what the role was of Tetris. So I thought that was quite interesting and I think, yeah, I didn't realise Tetris was quite that old but you learn quite a bit about its origin story in this film. Well, as you...
1: No, we've discussed it in in context of historical gaming before. I know nothing Mm. about it apart from about gaming from these periods, apart from what I saw in magazines and as references in films because I never had any of these things. And it's fascinating to me, something I'd never considered before in this film, they set out the the difference between handheld platforms, arcades, machines, arcade machines and computer games Mm -hmm. or console games. Uh, as the case may be. And I hadn't really considered the nuances between those. I mean, I knew about it, but I had no idea that there was, like, separate rights involved for licensing. Yeah,
0: yeah, because the games, you have to separately publish the game for each platform, and so, yeah, you learn quite a bit about the legalities around games. And I think... should we play a little uh, piece of Tetris theme music before we delve into talking about the movie itself? So the theme for Tetris is just as famous as Tetris in a way. It is a traditional Russian folk song called Korobainiki and it was added by a US distributor of the game. It wasn't something that was sort of originally in the conception of the game at the very beginning but it has also become quite iconic so let's hear a little bit of that theme uh this is the theme from tetris
1: this is jack dan author of bad medicine for zero g the science fiction fantasy and historical radio show on 3 (laughs) triple r fm i i never would Pick that until you've actually played that. You can clearly see the Russian folk melodies in that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Of course, that's the 8-bit version. Uh, That is a version of the Tetris theme. Uh, Originally, yes, the folk song that is called Cora by Niki. And I played that because we are talking about the film called Tetris, which is an Apple TV original film. It's on Apple TV+. Plus. It's directed by John S. Baird. Now, he's done a couple of films before that we might be familiar with. He did Filth, the adaptation of Irvine Welsh's novel, and he also did Stan and Ollie, which was the Laurel and Hardy by pick Uh, this film was written by noah pink now it does look like it's one of noah's first film writing credits and i thought it was a pretty hefty thing Mm. to take on and i personally think he did a great job plotting out something that could have been dreary dreary as hell (laughs) Uh, this is of course one of those in quotations based on a true story Films. Uh, It is, as sort of alluded before, a biopic of the origins of Tetris during the 1980s. It was created by a Russian developer in 1984 and became extremely popular in Russia. Uh, And then we follow its journey out of Russia into worldwide distribution. Uh, There was a race to secure the licensing rights by various parties who could see the promise and possibility of the game. So we have a couple of players in the mix who are all in search of getting the licensing rights to this game that they can see. It's probably going to be a huge success. All of this, of course, happens against the backdrop of the Cold War that was happening at the time, which adds some historical colour to the game's origin story.
1: Yeah, and so this is 1988, basically. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there are the Soviet Union is collapsing or breaking up or falling however you want to put it it is having trouble there are mm-hmm. lots of factors contributing to that breakup so the economy was moribund and and cracking under the costs of the Cold War which is not a cheap yeah. thing to engage in amongst other factors. <laughs> Uh, And They've got increasing democratisation of politics in the USSR, yay Gorbachev, uh, reforms (laughs) against embedded corruption and increasingly cumbersome state bureaucracy. And, boy, Mm -hmm. did they know how to do it. I mean, they were using 1984 as an instruction manual, basically. (laughs) Uh, Catastrophic 10-year war in Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989, the USSR's Vietnam, which... Underlined Soviet occupation of countries within the union, so mm-hmm. you know they're all playing up too. The fall of the Berlin Wall in nineteen eighty nine, such yeah. shoddy masonry, you know. <laughs> Solidarity movement in Poland and other states, yep. you know, uh, Chernobyl in nineteen eighty six, which which again, not I mean, for all of its consequences, it also underlined the gap between state propaganda and reality as if they needed that even more sort of highlighted.
0: Yeah and, hit that nail home, you know, yeah. And look,
1: and that that is just a, a potted version, there's so many different things there. It was all over by December nineteen ninety one. So basically this is in the in that big cauldron and turbulent era. And imagine trying to go into a country or or an empire and be engaged in this while it's all happening. Ah. Oh.
0: I would have been absolutely terrified. Yeah. And I think it does show some of the gumption of some of the characters from the more Western world as to, I don't know, just the sheer naivety in a way of the situation at the time inside the USSR. Like I would not be traveling there and, and just swanning about like it was any old, any old country at the time. Cause it just really wasn't anyway. Mm. Uh, all of that said, and that was a great rundown because I am semi-familiar with that time and you certainly do learn enough from the film because it is an important element of the film, but you don't really need to know a lot about that period of history going in. So because it really takes you by the hand and I think a lot of the ways the film is built out um, is meant to make it as palatable as possible. So where we come into our Tetris journey, we do have sort of our main hero. So we follow Taron Edgerton. He plays a character called Hank Rogers who is based on a real man. Uh, he's an American living in Tokyo and he discovers the game at kind of a convention and he sees right away the possibilities and then gradually through figuring out who owns what rights and a few false starts, he starts to really push for the rights to publish the game in on Nintendo through his own uh, company called Bulletproof Software, which publishes video games. He really wants to get this contract. He really wants to secure these rights so he can, at first he has his sights set on Japan distribution. And then, of course, we grow a bit from there as we find out more and more about this big tangled ball that is the rights of this game Tetris. So there are some bumps along the way for our hero, Hank. Uh, We do follow his journey for the most part. He goes to different locations around the world in pursuit of these game rights, and there is introduced. I don't think this is a spoiler. The stakes are are even higher once he sees a new prototype for the Game Boy from Nintendo, and this is really what spurs him on to get these handheld rights.
1: We know Taron, of course, from the Kingsman movies, uh, mm-hmm, and also mm-hmm. you know in, in the second one he rescued. A kidnapped Elton John and then went on to play him in the musical yeah. Rocket Man. And he also played yep. uh, Mr Hood in Robin Hood in that 2018 yes. movie that none of us have watched.
0: <laughs> well, yes, little bit of,
1: it was not worth a, it. A little bit of controversy over casting Taron yeah. in this. Uh, he's a Welsh actor and Hank Rogers is of partial Indonesian descent. So, you know, a little bit of whitewashing there. Yeah. That is what it is, um, and I just thought I might touch base on that as we walk through the character. I think he actually does the actual entrepreneurial <laughs> sort of <laughs> gung-ho, Ferengi aspect of the character quite well, but he's also a
0: very human character, and at the heart he's a geek too. He's a he's a gamer as well. Oh, his throwbacks to all of the Nintendo jargon that he throws out in order to kind of secure these rights with different parties is just it shows because he's a programmer as well. He has his own game. He sees it from that side as much as he's also interested in publishing this game and furthering his career and furthering kind of setting up his family so and I think he plays it perfectly I think he's a fantastic actor I don't think he does anything more or less in this role I do agree uh that it probably would have been nice to cast someone who was a little more close to the real Hank Rogers Mm. culturally but it's it's happened that's that's where we're at I think as well he does show a bit that the American gusto that he comes into this with probably did serve him in the end because it, it, he really does get thrown into quite a dangerous situation heading into the Soviet Union meeting with government officials at Elog which is the government owned organization where the gate that owns the rights to the game and he is our clear protagonist and hero but you can definitely also the the film doesn't shy away from showing the ways he's failed his family the way the things he's left behind yeah. in order to rabidly pursue these game rights as well but you do continue to root for him cuz ultimately he's a very likable character especially when you consider the backdrop that he's really up against a bunch of far less well-drawn characters (laughs) they're like 2d cartoon villains and i'm not even talking about kgb russian government (laughs) characters i'm talking about the other people pursuing the rights i was like they're also based on real people I'm thinking mainly of Kevin Maxwell, who's played by Anthony Boyle. He is the CEO of Mirrorsoft, another company in pursuit of these rights, and he's the son of a media tycoon, Robert Maxwell, played by Roger Allen. Now, these two are—they're oh, foul, absolutely foul. <laughs> and as we see in the little, I love, I thrive when you see a based on a true story film. The bit at the end where they show you know how everything turned out with pictures of the real characters. That is, I love that. And so as you sort of see a bit of the Maxwells, um, you realise they are foul characters in real life too. So I think they were leaning into that a bit.
1: And the funny thing is that both of those actors, uh, Roger Ellum and Anthony Boyle, well, Ellum played Magister Mopapus in the Game of Thrones and also uh, Azalea in the Sandman. So he's got this whole line already running. And Anthony Boyle made his name in the West End as Scorpius Malfoy in the play version of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child.
0: Oh, <laughs> very interesting. I didn't realise that. But they both, um, yeah, they both really lean in, but those characters aren't given very much to do in this film. I mean, they're core in the action, but like I said, they're quite 2D and not afraid to, yeah, sit on the wrong side of the law. I would shout out to
1: Igor, Rabusov playing Valentin uh, Trifonoi with a KGB thug, um, but he's also like Minister of Trade or something like that. Yeah. As it often I... was, you know, it meant that you could travel and do stuff and 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 legitimately go, you know, this is uh, I'll point out, I am in trade, you know, as well, so that's why I'm at this mm-hmm. meeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's actually exactly. great. He's got this, uh, this great set of piercing eyes that have got this sort of helter-skelter look to them.
0: Oh, yeah, he's formidable. He's got a really formidable energy, which he brings to the character. And, and like I agree. I thought he was fantastic, as was Oleg Shitfunko playing uh, Nikolai Belikov, yes. who is a government official at ELOG, and he just wants to cut the best deal for the Soviet Union out of all of this. And I think it was surprising to me how much I started to really like that character <laughs> and yeah, kind of becomes uh, an ally to Rogers, Hank Rogers' cause um, because they're all competing. So we've got Rogers competing with the Maxwells and then we also have a character in here played by Toby Jones called Robert Stein, again, based on a real man. Oh, yes, Mr. Stein. Now, this is Toby Jones.
1: Like, you know, what are we last oh, – well, okay, he is the uh... – uh, the amiable uh, Lance Stater in The Detectorists, you know, the guys with the metal detectors. <laughs> oh, yeah. So he's been great <laughs> in that. I first saw him in Sally Potter's fantasy film Orlando in 1992 where he plays like oh, yeah. just a valet off You know, off, off to the <laughs> side. But, wow. But we also know him for his voice roles as Dobby in the Harry Potter films and he was in Doctor Who, like all other British actors, in uh, <laughs> The Dream Lord playing the villain. And... We also know him as Claudius Templesmith in the Hunger Games movies. Of course, yes. But <laughs> most particular for Marvel fans, he is the evil Arnim Zola, the mad scientist in the MCU, Captain America, the First Avenger, the Winter Soldier, where he's computerised, ironically, and <laughs> also the voice of the character in the Disney Plus series, What If. And I pause to note that in Tetris we once again have Arnim Zola having trouble with a man called Rogers. (laughs) Very true, very true. Hey, don't you find it's hilarious that this is filmed in Aberdeen and Glasgow, like standing in for brutalist Soviet architecture?
0: (laughs) I wonder how they feel, the Aberdeenians feel about that. (laughs) Um, But, yes, Toby Jones playing another pretty 2D character, Um, Robert Stein is from Andromeda Software. He's another player in the game of trying to secure these rights. Um, There's a lot of back and forth and people selling here and there, so I won't dig too much into that. Just know that he's also got skin in the game.
1: We should also mention uh, Nikita Efremov playing Alexei, the developer of Tetris, uh, an actor who had the lead role in a Russian television series, The Librarian, which is about magic books but not to do with the other series, The Librarian. At least I don't think so unless it's the same book. I don't know. Anyway, he's actually really good. He's very personable and he's kind of the face of um, every man Russian, even if he is a programmer, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Agree. Agree. I think he, it starts off, I wasn't sure how much of a role he would actually have in the film. And then they grow and grow. As soon as the film really starts to take place inside Russia, his role grows, obviously. And I think uh, that actor, yeah, Nikita does a really fantastic job as the original programmer and I think him and Taryn Edgerton have a great chemistry, which is also really important because the real-life Hank Rogers and the real-life Alexei Pajitnov do, they ended up forming a company together. They obviously have a relationship uh, and a friendship and so I thought that they, I liked that they included that in the film.
1: That brings me to the historicity of the of the Tetris biopic uh, Look, they've obviously uh, G'd up the KGB involvement in this and pushed everything to the stops. So, you know, there's a, there's a car chase that never happened and, you know, all sorts of things like that which they've just done just to dramatise things. And it's not yeah. – and actually that actually all fits into the Tetris game format of this movie as I was watching it because they really push that too. They use game graphics mm, a lot. Yes. And you realise yep. that a lot of this stuff actually is like Tetris. They're trying to form the licensing rights into the into the contracts that they need. So actually I'm kind of thinking it's a good metaphor for yeah. the film.
0: It got you, it got you. Yeah, I did think that it leans into that 8-bit animation style uh, and they have a really stylized way of setting up the exposition at the start and then they incorporate that as like character placeholders and chapter placeholders and it kind of means that, It's quite distinct to the, you know, Soviet Union brutalist surroundings. And then you have these kind of whimsical little throwbacks and reminders that, yeah, we're actually just talking about the rights to a game as they go on this race around the world to secure the rights. Mm. Should we listen to a little track before we wrap up talking about Tetris the film? Yes, I think so. Now- underground dance
1: parties were a thing in the soviet union and it's not mm-hmm. not the first and not the last time that pop music was or will be used as a symbol of resistance to an oppressive state or actually even any state at all <laughs> that's the way pop music rolls and you no know, that's a, in the film they they go to one of those and we hear some russian versions of American pop songs, and in in this case, it's "Heart of Glass," which, of course, is iconic, one of the 100 great pop songs, I suppose. Uh, Mm -hmm. Parallel Lines, 1978, and a single in 1979. So we're talking Blondie and Debbie Harry, and ironically, guitarist Chris Stein. (laughs) So it was fated for us to play this. Now, yes, it is that that song in Russian and fully aware of the catastrophe war crime tragedy in Ukraine. So not intended to support that in any way, shape or form. This is just from the soundtrack of the album of Tetris. This is China Mieville, author of The City and the City, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple (laughs) R FM Melbourne Heart of Glass. Let's hope that turns out to be prophetic for Vladimir Putin. Maybe he has a, a glass jaw and Ukraine will turn out to be his Afghanistan. We are talking about the film set in 1988 during the fall of the mm-hmm. Soviet Union, which is called Tetris, and that Russian version of Heart of Glass was actually done by uh, US singer and songwriter, Paulina, and she came from Russia so you know an expat there. Um, So this is all from the soundtrack of Tetris which is an Apple TV Plus original film which we've been talking about here on Zero G.
0: Yes so I guess final thoughts on it I really enjoyed it. It is not a deep character driven piece but I think it firmly taps into the retro nostalgia that is selling really well right now and they know that Edgerton's mustache alone is really tapping into the 80s vibe. <laughs> I also think that really props to the filmmaker and writer for making a legal battle for distribution rights so thrilling. Yeah. And I know we're throwing yeah, exactly. And I know we're throwing in Soviet Union, KGB. So yeah, there's some built in excitement there. But there's discussions of royalties, contracts, and rights, and they've somehow made it like a tensely plotted story, which I thought was yeah. <laughs> which I thought was a real accomplishment. Also the discussions of the consoles and distribution and like the name drop bingo of Sega Atari and so on was thrilling for me as a as a nerd born in the 80s. Uh, and I think the overall production design and the backdrops and how it's all pulled together is is Ugh. really gives a sense of time and place without being overpowering. So I'd say obviously with the caveat, this has been given the movie treatment, like you mentioned, they've probably inserted more action and tension than what really happened. But I really thought it was a fun little film and I enjoyed learning a bit more about the origins of Tetris. And I don't think this is a spoiler per se, but I was happy to kind of find out that the creator himself did end up going on to be able to earn money from his creation and he it wasn't one of those stories about someone who got trodden over by the system. So... That heartened me to to watching it.
1: I agree with everything you've said. I also think that it's a remarkably tense film. They managed to whistle up that air of sinister fret that you would have gotten in that very oppressive state back in the day and still do now, and I thought that was a remarkable achievement for a film which could come across as a bit of a a nerd geek fest and it certainly was for Mm. me even though it's not my geekery tetris as Mm. a a game i understand and see it and recognize it very very well (laughs) if you want to know more about the actual events of this you might check out a i think 2004 bbc documentary called tetris from russia with love so you might hunt that down so you can get some the actual background on it. Isn't that great that we can watch this film and then sort of get inspired to go off and find out more about that particular time?
0: Oh, yeah. It sounds like it's rich with little interesting tidbits that you never really realise about, I don't know, things that end up being quite ubiquitous in our modern world have a really interesting backstory. Mm,
1: And props to you, Megan, for pointing this film out to me because I had no idea about Tetris. And and it (laughs) turns out to be really fascinating and completely gripping and steeped in the actual gameplay too.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad you really enjoyed it. That was Tetris, it's on Apple TV+, Plus and it's available now. So in zero G terms
1: of uh, yeah, nah, or maybe, it definitely gets a da from me. Agreed. All right. Now, we will have a little bit of a track here to edge us into a discussion about Star Trek Picard. And this is the Star Trek Next Generation theme rendered in 8-bit. <laughs> Tones, and this is actually, technically speaking, a CD 4 oh, sorry, Commodore sixty four chip tune cover from an album which is so engagingly titled "C sixty four Sid <laughs> a Bit Chip Tune Cover Collection," and by an artist called uh, Nordish Sound. Engage.
0: Zero G is fun, as you were. <laughs>
1: Star Trek Next Generation theme, Commodore 64 SID chip tune cover from, <laughs> I guess that's a because that's the album name, and it's by Nordish Sound. And we just thought we'd play that riffing off Tetris, but also moving into Star Trek Picard. And that's just <laughs> dropped its final episode on Paramount Plus. Uh, it's a US Star Trek franchise movie series, sorry, created by. Akiva Goldsman, Michael Chabon, Kirsten Beyer, and Alex Kurtzman, and they when they started this, are putting it up for CBS All Access, but that's been rebranded now. It is the eighth Star Trek series, and started out in twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty three. But of course, it's set in the far future of the United Federation of Planets. Actually, mm, it also also set in contemporary times too, because there is time travel in it. And they have vacuumed up all of the tropes from the best of Star (laughs) Trek for this series over its three years. It, of course, features Jean-Luc Picard uh, Uh 20 years after he last appeared in Star Trek Nemesis, which was a a pretty unsatisfactory movie in 2002 and not really a good send-off for the beloved character of Jean-Luc Picard or anyone else really and so what they've done is basically although they, they carefully said look we're not going full nostalgia but they have <laughs> by the third season oh my god they're so nostalgic terry Metalis is serving as the showrunner lots of creds like in the 12 monkeys series uh the reboot of macgyver um also um Worked on uh, Star Trek Voyager and Star Trek Enterprise writing stories for that. Worked on that uh, Terra Nova series and Nikita. uh, Done a bit of comic book writing too. So, you know, he knows his stuff and done a pretty good job on this series 30 episodes in all 10 episodes in the final season season one we went through picard's legacy of helping romulan refugees after the destruction of their home world which we saw in the 2009 jj abrams film star trek uh, which mm-hmm. also takes place partly in the main star trek universe and not just in an alternate timeline where chris pine is captain kirk and zachary quinto wears mr spock's bangs uh, Spacebook status, it's complicated. Uh, compares and contrasts in that season with attitudes to synthetic beings, androids, so there's prejudice against the Romulans and bigotry, which culminates in Picard himself becoming a synth, which I thought was quite a clever idea, but not a super-powered one, so he's not like Mr Data, he doesn't have all of those extra abilities. A Shame. He should be able to unlock those, though. I reckon it should be like a next level. Yeah. <laughs> enhanced Picard, because he could surely need need that in uh, Season 2, which involves Mm. um, dystopic alternative timelines and time travel, which they do so well on Star Trek, the entity formerly known as Q, and a Borg queen. By this time, Picard has a whole new crew and seven of nine from Star Trek Voyager assisting him. And this is a constant theme in the Picard series. They keep bringing back characters until Season 3, which they just go crazy with it. Uh, Picard learns that he has a son with Beverly Crusher, and I am going to do some spoilers here, so you might want to eject the saucer section and reach safe distance. His son is named Jack, after Beverly's former husband. Um, shades of Captain Kirk and Carol Marcus and David Marcus in Star Trek Wrath of Khan. Uh, Jack is being hunted by changelings. Remember them, the the, uh, the characters who could shape from the Dominion? And they have been motivated by that defeat in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, but also because they've been experimented upon by the evil people in Starfleet. And we know that there are evil people. Hell, you know, uh, Academy Award winner Michelle Yeoh is going to get a whole movie about those evil people called Ooh. Section 31. Now We'll watch. The Changelings are in league with the Borg. Starfleet has been infiltrated and assimilated is this about the next generation or the last generation? Well, it's hard to say. Of course, it can't be because, you know, there's future events that will spin off. Um, we must reunite the last, the next generation that we used to know, uh, Seven Samurai style. And we do get most of them, including the iconic Starship. And there's all sorts of evolutions they go to the do. The gangs this. back together. But look, it's not. Anywhere near the level of like Gilligan's Island Return To or anything like, you know, Adam's Family, anything like where you've taken a classic show and you've rebooted it as a, as a special, you know, a reunion thing. It's way better than any of those. They deserve the nostalgia fest. They've, they've earned it. And they pull it off with remarkable panache, I thought. Even if it is, there's nothing new in this, really, by definition, and it is it is actually quite corny in some ways, but they pull it off. And I thought, yeah, you guys, you did this. We've got Michelle Hurd reprising her role as uh, rafaela Picard's former Starfleet First Officer, and they delve into her substance abuse backstory a bit more in this. Jerry Ryan plays Seven of Nine, and she used to be a Borg. <laughs> Don't spoil her there. Uh, and she's had such a – Jerry Ryan and such such a character journey in Star Trek, from Voyager to this. It's amazing. She's a, a great addition to this cast. We've got Ed Spielers playing Jack Crusher, English actor and producer. I first saw him in the director DVD film Howl. Which is a werewolf horror film where he's playing a, a train conductor, but he's also the title character in Aragon in two thousand and six, and he was in Outlander and Downton Abbey and uh, Zoo, which is a zombie zoo <laughs> movie, <laughs> and of course he's in um, Lars von Trier's uh, House That Jack Built, but I don't think it's the uh, quite jack crusher in that different jack people who watched and enjoyed sarah connor chronicles will see thomas decker pop up in a little role he was john connor in that and todd stashwick is a grumpy curmudgeonly delight as captain leon Shaw of will riker's old ship the uss titan jonathan frakes actually uh, directs several episodes of this season too he's a good director and he certainly he's a good director of star trek too uh stashwick played deacon on 12 monkeys there's a, a connection with a the showrunner there and i remember him as playing dr drunken in the disney channel film kim possible yes there was a live action film based on that too he's an online comic book writer as well another character in this is amanda Plummer, who plays captain Vadik of the enemy ship the shrike and this is a ship we were talking about a couple of episodes ago that has spikes on the front so you are no doubt about the threat level that it presents. She's great in this. She chooses the scenery so much. She mm-hmm. has a great weird delivery and she's just a phenomenon in this. You will not be surprised to know that she's the daughter of the late Christopher Plummer who played oh. General Chang in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, where he clung on to the scenery himself and delivered vast tracks of Shakespeare in the original Klingon. Ah, of course, yeah. <laughs> she was in Joe versus the Volcano, The Fisher King, Pulp Fiction in 1994, and The Hunger Games, Catching Fire. She was one of the former tributes who, um, who won mm, The Hunger okay. Games. And she is a wanderer in this, and she actually gets to drop the F-bomb in Star Trek, I think, oh, wow. for the first time. It's a streaming show. You can do all sorts of things with this. All rules are off. The action is completely up the top of the transporter console in this. Uh, Starfleet battles. I uh, is so good, this show. Uh, <laughs> you know, and then there. it's my favourite addition to it. Again, spoilers in this. Michael Dorn coming back to play Mr. Worf. Mm, mm, and mm, he mm. has played him as he wanted to play him in a, a pitched spin-off Star Trek series about the Klingons and Worf. He has played him as a warrior poet. Oh, very nice. Yeah, you know, and he's ta- he delivers his monologue about, uh, I am Worf, son of Morg, you know, slayer of Martok, bane of the Duras family. I have made chamomile tea. Would you like some? <laughs> it <laughs> is this beautiful Elegant relationship that he has with Rafi in this story as a sort of a mentor, uh, intelligence handler, type thing, yeah. and it's it's good actually. It gives Rafi something uh, really to to do, and uh, and I thought this is a, g- a great inclusion of a character, an old character in this. But there are so many in this, you will be sitting there going, "Oh, that's so and so. Oh, look, oh yes, here's his entrance and her. You know, it's the whole thing, and, and I loved it because. Next generation has a special spot in Star Trek fans' hearts. Look, I liked about fifty percent of the episodes, and that's pretty good, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I had a hell of a time revisiting it in Star Trek Picard season three. Nothing new in it really, but plenty of actual actual fret. Again, like Tetris, a surprising mm-hmm. level of malevolence and horror involved in this season that the actors all carried off quite well.
0: Nice. And the nostalgia cranked to high. Oh, so high, so so beyond. <laughs> Whether or not they
1: could put in another season, I don't know. Um, you know, this would be this would be a beautiful farewell to the characters and the next generation yeah. era. But there is promise of a new series spinning off from this. I don't. There's nothing oh, being greenlit, but it is clear by the ending of this that you could you could totally do that. Okay. I'm surprised. Stay tuned. You know, eight, season, eight, eight series on and, and umpteen movies, and they've still got things that they can do with this. To me, it seems like Star Trek has reached that level in a in a media. I hate to call them franchises, but you know, in in, mm. in a media IP, <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: where they are like King Arthur or Robin Hood or Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes, Holmes yep. you know. So they're at that level where they just are self perpetuating. Yeah. All right, so let's have a track here from the soundtrack of Star Trek Picard. Stephen Barton and Frederick Weidman do this from Star Trek original series season three, and it's Klingons Never Disappoint. And we probably won't play the whole thing, but there's some lovely riffs on this that that pull off of uh, Jerry Goldsmith's original Klingon score and also elements from The Next Generation. And this is one of those bits where Worf comes to the rescue. Hi, I'm George Takei, and I play Admiral Sulu in Star Trek. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G. Admiral? Hey, a guy can dream, can't he? (laughs) Ah, It is a good day to die, Mr. Worf. (laughs) Klingons never disappoint from Star Trek 3 Series three, that is Picard, and that is by Stephen Barton and Frederick Weidman. On all levels, this show is such a good one. Now, at finally at its conclusion, they've had some bumpy spots along the way, but it is on Paramount Plus at the moment, season nice. three. Picard. Oh, and it's actually now become a thing that uh, captains have a catchphrase that they Use when they tell the ship's crew that they're going into warp. You know, it's like, engage, make it so, <laughs> you know, all that sort of stuff. And it's it's actually quite an endearing tradition. I will have to come up with something for Zero-G. I su- Absolutely. I suppose the uh, on Triple R is the, my thing, isn't it, really? True. <laughs> <that, laughs> yeah. Now, all right, we're just going to have a quick look at uh, the trailer for The Marvels, the, which has dropped, which has all, yes. all the Marvels in it. <laughs> which is to say Monica Rambeau, Captain Marvel, Brie Larson, and also (laughs) Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan. Yeah. Yeah. So stoked to see this. It looked like fun. What did you think, Megan?
0: I thought, I mean, look, we've talked before. We were a little let down by it. Ant-Man Quantumania, we're ready to get back into the groove. I think this one really captures there's a fun premise that's set out right away, which if you watch the trailer is basically a bit of a body-swapping situation. Love that premise. Big uh prop possibilities for action and comedy and i'm really looking forward to this one we'll have to wait till november but the thing that i was most excited about which is a very specific thing is there's an actor in this called park sojun who is a korean actor and i didn't realize he was going to be in this film he's very popular in korea he was in Parasite. He had a small role, but he's been in loads and loads of Korean dramas and he's very well-known and um, very handsome. And so I was very pleased. He gets one shot in the trailer and I know that's them recognising. We know there's Park Se-Joon fans out there who are going to be want to see him. And so he gets one shot and that was enough for me and I'm very, very excited to see his role in this um in this mm. film?
1: This is directed by Nia DaCosta, the youngest filmmaker to direct a Marvel film. And mm. she has worked on, you know, lots of other short films and longer films like Candyman in 2021 and mm-hmm. Little Woods in 2018. But she's also did some work on the She Hulk series too. So, you know, I think she's probably in a good position to do all this Oh, i should mention uh tiona paris who plays monica rambo who was seen before in the wandavision um series too yes so samuel jackson is appearing too uh probably spinning off some of the events of secret invasion and we also have goose the cat the flurker yes (laughs) you know so that's a great thing to see in there again i'm looking so much forward to this one um i hope that um They do it justice. I was a big fan of the first Brie Larson Captain Marvel movie, Mm -hmm. and I just can't wait to see this since I love the Ms. Marvel series as well, and I just think it's all going to dovetail together terrifically. I bet Kelly Sue DeConnick, who did such an iconic run on the Captain Marvel comic books, is sitting there just waiting for this too and happy, you know, because this is just such a great idea. All right. It also features shape-shifting scrolls. So we're in the changeling thing from Picard too. Well, that's about yeah. it for Zero G for today. Um, we will play, I think, some more 8-bit <laughs> magic here to go out with. And that will be Heroes for our weekly Bowie. Um, and this is from 8-bit bit misfits and they've actually got a whole album eight bit versions of david bowie which i've just discovered God. oh no <laughs> <laughs> says Megan. there's going to be a lot of those on
0: <laughs> he's put it in his favorites folder <laughs> yeah i have indeed
1: until next week so joe brunatic is coming up next with astral glamour thank you to alice savage our podcaster and thank you megan thank you rob